Good morning. All right. Um, we're in Romans chapter 15. Uh, we'll be together, you and I, for the next few weeks. And uh, we're going to be closing out the book of Romans together. And as we do that, I, I want you to see that the book of Romans, uh, up until this point, it's, it's been deep and theological, and there's been a lot to take from it. Um, but I also want to remind us and take a step back that the letter to the Romans is actually a letter. And for the next couple of weeks, it's going to feel like you are reading someone else's mail. Um, and so some of this is, we're going to look at it, and it's going to feel a little bit like, all right, uh, thanks, Paul. I didn't know if I really needed to know that, but that looks good. Um, so what I want us to do is we're going to pull some things out, but there, there's... There's those times, you know, like when uh, a lot of you, sometimes we go on these missions trips for a short-term thing, and, and you, have you ever had one of those times where you've either sent one of those letters or you've received one of those letters? It's like a mission support letter, hey, my name is this, and this is what's going on in my life, and I'm going to this place, and God is going to use me here, and would you give? And it always, if you've ever had to write one of those, it always feels a little bit awkward and weird to have to write one, and then... If you've read them, then you're kind of like, okay, I know where this is going. And so this is a little bit like that today. Paul is actually here in this passage is writing a missionary support letter. And what I want to do today is give you a little bit of framework and some context to understand, number one, what's going on with him. But number two, is there something here that we can glean? And so out of that, the outline that you have in your bulletin that you got, there's some questions that I want us to sit with and think about so we can kind of look inwardly and say, okay, something's going on in Paul and his posture towards the Lord, and, and what can I be doing in my own life? But along the lines of awkward letters, I thought this might be kind of fun to share one with you. I heard uh, Chuck Swindoll share this years ago, and, and, and this is how it goes. It, the story it deals with a, an old-fashioned lady who is planning for a couple of weeks of vacation in Florida. And she was very elegant with her words and her language. And so she wrote a particular letter to a particular campground, and she was asking about reservations. She wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped, but she didn't quite know how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. So after much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term, bathroom commode. How many of you guys use that term? Lazy Dog Cafe, pardon me, where's your bathroom commode? No. But when she wrote the words bathroom commode down, she still thought that she was being too forward, so she started all over again, rewrote the entire letter, and referred to the bathroom commode simply as the BC. Does the campground have its own BC is what she actually wrote. Well, the campground owner wasn't old-fashioned at all, and he got the letter. He couldn't figure out what the old lady was saying, the BC really stumped him. And so after worrying about it for several days, he showed the letter to other campers, but they couldn't figure out what the lady meant either. The campground owner finally came to the conclusion that the lady was and must be asking about the location of the local Baptist church. So he sat down and he wrote the following reply. Complaints can be directed to dmitchell at calvarylife.org. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it's quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly, 
But no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a whole day of it. Now, they usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago. And it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. D. Mitchell, I can't really have to argue. It may interest you to know that right now there's a supper being planned to raise money to buy more seats. They plan to hold the supper right in the middle of the BC so everyone can watch and talk about this great event. I'd like to say that it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it surely isn't for lack of desire on my part. Sometimes as we get older, it seems more and more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. I actually had to Google that because I wasn't, I didn't understand that. I'll, I'll find out one day. If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time, sit with you, introduce you to all the other folks. This really is a very friendly community. If I rip it up, no one will know it ever happened. Awkward letters, right? Paul is here in this letter and he's asking the church in Rome, hey, God is sending me out. I have a mission. Here's a big picture, right? This is what happened. This is what's been going on in my ministry so far. And this is what I plan to do. Would you support me as I go? Would you support me by sharing in my vision? Will you support me by giving to what is going on? I need some money to make this happen. And I I need some prayer. That's that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So what I'd like you to do is go to Romans 15. Verses 14 to 33 is what we're going to be doing. And we're going to be looking at how we can be living out our part in God's story. The assumption this morning is that God is up to something. That God has a plan. He's not sitting there thinking, wow, this is not how I thought this was going to go. I wonder what we should do next. God has a plan and his plan will be fulfilled. But you are here because you are part of his story. You are part of his plan And the sooner that you can figure out what God has you here on this earth for, you can engage in that and be part of what God is asking you to do. So this first question is, how is God working out his story through you? Have you ever stopped to ask that question? What is it, God, that you want me to be doing with my life here on this earth? We, we have ourselves right here towards the end of the series, and we've called the series Live Free. We talked about the first part of Romans as set free. We have. We've been set free from our sins, and now we are called to live free. This is what this actually looks like, but if you read the email I sent out this week, I talked about that living free is not a vacation. This is what living free really looks like, is what Paul is describing in this passage. It's not that you've been set free, so now you can go to Hawaii and sit on the beach for the rest of your life. Paul has been set free, and this is what his life looks like now that he is living free. And so, what does that look like for you? How is God working out his story through you? So let's look in verse 14. And this is the letter that he writes to the Romans. He says, "...in concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness." filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. You guys have it together, and when you don't, you guys are able to help correct each other. But I've also written to you very boldly on some points as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Remember, Paul is a Jew, and he wants to see the Jewish people saved. He says that in chapter 1, verse 16. But... He also is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's opening up doors into the world. And so he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest. 
the gospel of God and the offering that he gives as a priest, my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made holy by the Spirit of God. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. He's not bragging here. He's saying, because of what Jesus Christ has done, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders came as confirmation that he was being sent by God in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. This is the section where he's saying, this is what I have done, and this is what God is doing with me. But you will find that if you are obedient and you are listening to the voice of God in your life and you are going out and you are being used, that it's not all beautiful, it's not all easy all the time. In fact, sometimes it's disruptive. Sometimes it doesn't go how you thought it was going to go. Think about Paul in his life. Paul is a religious, pious Jew that was going to kill other Jews who put their faith in Jesus. He was on this road to Damascus and God knocked him off of his horse and said, your story is about to change. Are you going to listen? Are you going to be obedient? And so there's a disruption and that changed the trajectory and the course of Paul's life for the rest of his life. And in the end, it actually cost his life. As he's writing his second letter to Timothy, he is in prison once again, and he writes to Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Sometimes following God's will for your life is disruptive, but it's also humbling. He says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Sometimes there's a danger in being successful in ministry. Paul is planting churches left and right, going all over the place. I'll show you a map in a second. But he says, look, I just want to let you guys know, Romans here, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some good things, but it's, it's the power of God in me. In fact, he, he gives this picture of, he says, I, I'm like a, a priest, and my offering to God is, is I'm presenting him to the Gentiles. I'm bringing Gentiles to him, and they're being made holy by the Spirit of God. And so sometimes... It's humbling. Sometimes you come into these points of ministry and you think it's all about you. And when I say ministry, don't disconnect like, Matt, you're the pastor and I, I, like, I'm in sales and I work at Starbucks, whatever that is. You know, if you are being called by God and if you see the big picture of what God is doing in your life, then you have a ministry. You have to find a way to figure out what it is that God is calling you to. What is your kingdom calling in life? It might be what you're doing at your job and it might not be. But sometimes when we get that success, we think pridefully that it's all about us, that somehow it is I who am responsible for the growth. And really, it's about the Lord. Sometimes it's disruptive, sometimes it's humbling, and sometimes it's actually beautiful. And, and Paul is saying, there are, there are powers and signs and wonders and, and the power of the Spirit that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Um, when he says, I have fully preached, he's saying, I'm going to kind of put a, a, a bow around this season of my life in ministry, and, and I'm going to give that to the Lord. I kind of feel this phase of my life and my ministry is coming to an end, and God has something coming before me. But he says, from Illyricum to Jerusalem, here's a little map. 
Paul is writing from Corinth. It's the place right there in the middle. That's where this letter is being written or dictated. There's somebody else who's actually writing it. But he says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is actually modern-day Albania today, former Yugoslavia, that, that area. But think about it. I, I, I don't give these guys enough credit sometimes. I, I've traveled to certain places, but you don't think that like 2,000 years ago, like they didn't jump on a plane. Like It's boats, and he's hoofing it on foot, and he's going from place to place, and he's planting churches all over the place. And he says, you know what? This season and my goal, my task at this point in my life, um, I have fully preached the gospel. So he says, this is the next phase. So that's what God has been doing, but this is what's going on. So the next question I want us to think about as we read this letter to the Romans from Paul is, how is God revealing his call in your life? For Paul, it was abundantly clear. He said, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, and he, he quotes from Isaiah 52, he says, They who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. Paul is a pioneer. Paul wants to go where there's nobody who's ever heard about Jesus. He's all, I just want to go. He, in, in fact, there's this little discussion that breaks out in 1 Corinthians 3 where some people are saying, I'm of Paul, He's, I'm in his camp, and I'm, in, I'm following Apollos, and Paul says, no, 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 don't, don't say I belong to this guy, and I belong, we all have a role, we all have something, and he says, I, Paul, I planted, and Apollos watered, but God is the one that caused the growth. Remember that passage? Paul's saying, my job is I'm a planter. I like to go to places where the gospel hasn't been named. And so, this is his call, and, and I want you to think about this for Paul, he likes to pioneer new frontiers. For me, God, at this place in my life, I'm, I'm helping to strengthen marriages and families here at Calvary Church, even as I'm strengthening my own. But for you, what is God calling you to? What is God revealing? Have you ever stopped to just ask that question and say, God, what, what is it? Why am I here? There's a group that was gathered in uh, the year 2000 in Amsterdam. It was for a Billy Graham gathering of leaders in the evangelical world um, and uh, it's it, it, it's what has been come, become known today as the Issachar Initiative but I want to give you a glimpse of how that started because I'm thankful that there are groups of pioneers of Paul's still living today who want to see the places that have not been reached and the places that haven't even been targeted to be reached reached in our lifetime, they say in the next 10 years, by 2024, they want to see every people group reached. You're going to see a guy on here named Paul Eshelman. He is the father of our own John Eshelman. I talked to John, and John was actually at this meeting. And I want you to see the history of Table 71. It's a little bit long, but it's totally worth it. Watch this. It was in Amsterdam 2000 when a miracle started that no one could have anticipated. Dr. Graham asked if I would bring together 600 strategists from throughout the world to take one segment of Amsterdam 2000. And we decided during that time that we would invite people to come to a room, 600, and meet around 75 tables. And we would talk about everything that had to do with the completion of the Great Commission and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It was the third day when we were gathered together and Paul Eshelman stood up, who at the time was leading the Jesus Film Project, 
but was starting to really study people groups in a whole new way, stood up and talked about the least reached or the unengaged people groups, at that time called untargeted people groups of the world. And there was about 230. Well, that's when Bruce Wilkinson came to the platform. He was working with Paul MC in the home meeting. He came up to the microphone and said, there shouldn't be any untargeted people groups in the world. Just the idea that there would be untargeted people groups means we're not doing our job. I said, we uh, lead the vast majority of the Earth's Christian army in this room. And if we decided together today, let's finish it. And there was a growing sense uh, in the room that uh, this is something that was uh, deeply on God's heart and that he had given the body of Christ everything that was needed to reach these people groups. And eventually I challenged the people and said, why don't you get around with a group from your organizations from all over the world and take a look at all those sheets of all the unreached people groups and why don't you pick the ones you feel God is calling you and your organization and take ownership of this. And so he said, if you'll take one, two or five, come up and shake Paul's hand and say, we're taking two from our organization. One person said, well, I'll take one. Another person said, I'll take three. And another guy said, I'll take 10. He was a layman. He didn't know what he was talking about. But to his credit, I met him out in India doing it. And I just stood back and watched God people's hearts here, here, here. People came up, some of them were weeping, they embraced each other, and they put their name, and you could see things were happening in the heavenlies at that moment. The blood of Christ was being applied to, the, to these groups that have yet to hear he died for them. It was this electric environment. I mean, really, it was one of the most exciting moments that uh, we had experienced. And we got up to about 141 and nobody came. Nobody, they were all done. There was no one else coming forward. I invited the men and women to consider coming forward again and making commitments if they felt God was leading them. A few did and then it just stopped. I mean, it completely went quiet in the room. As, as exciting was all the euphoria over adopting them, I mean, the opposite end was the discouragement we all felt at the quiet because it just stopped. And I stood back from the pulpit and was praying quietly, saying to the Lord, Lord, every time I've ever watched you do something, you never did it halfway. You always completed it. Whatever you want, please complete it. And I was with Steve Douglas, who just become president of Campus Crusade for Christ. We were at the table together. He was our table moderator. And he knew I was with YWAM. And so he leans over and he goes, well, why don't our two organizations, YWAM and Campus, finish it? take the rest of the list of the 232. And then all of a sudden, I saw a table out there, the table I was seated at, because it was the only table that had an empty chair on it. <laughs> it was buzzing back and forth, and everybody else was kind of quiet, and these were key leaders in the country, and I thought, that's unusual for them to be, talking like at this moment. My mind is spinning, I'm looking at the list on the table, because it, the ones that are left are the hardest of the groups. I mean, it's these are the groups where you could go in, but maybe you wouldn't come out. And then all of a sudden, th there was consensus around this table. I was watching them, and, and they were nodding like this. And then somebody came up from table 71 with a note that said, table 71 takes the rest. There was shouting in heaven, literally. 
I can't imagine what the angels must have sounded like when finally the sons of men stepped up to the bat in such a way that Christ's agenda, the what he's waiting to be completed, has finally become our most important finish line. And uh, I'm sitting back at the table thinking, oh my gosh, what did we just do? You know, we took responsibility for 120, 130 people groups. I think Steve was feeling some of the same. We rallied and, and actually started working overtime. We worked some during the breaks. We, uh, we actually met past the end of the time that our group was supposed to end. Steve and I look at each other and, okay, we committed to reach these groups. What's reach? You know, so we're trying to grapple with what are the key elements of what we call reach with these groups. And so we just named the obvious. We said, well, first of all, we need church planting. I was at a different table, and at the break time, David Garrison, who was the global strategist for the International Mission Board, and one of my staff came and said, you've got to come over to this table, because something's happening. And he said, Avery, we need this, and we describe it, and he goes, I'm in. He pulls up a chair. But then we know we need Bibles, obviously, translated Bibles, and there were no Bibles in those languages yet for these groups. At the time, the president of Wycliffe was Roy Peterson. And during a break time, I was at a table adjacent to Table 71. Um, the group at Table 71 called me over and said, you've got to come over and listen to what we're thinking about. It just works like that until all of these main categories we call REACH all have their leaders sitting at the table. You know, every, every session, we were just building one after another until we came to a time of, of developing a contract with one another, a commitment that we all signed by the end of the time. And we said, is this what we're committed to? And the answer was, yes. We are committed to the number zero. That someday, people who do research would search to and fro throughout the earth, and they would find zero unengaged, unreached people groups. And praise God that there are men and women who are stepping up, yeah? Don't, don't disconnect, though. Don't say, oh, I'm glad they got it covered. I'm going to live free. We have to engage in this. And, and so not only are we asking the question, God, what, what is the part that you have for me in your story? What are you revealing? But how is God inviting you to join others? We have to believe that if God is God over the body of Christ, then we are members of the body of Christ, that he is giving us each a piece of this puzzle, something that he wants us to be doing. And it's not like, great, Paul, go take care of it. Paul is writing to the Romans because he has teams, he has people, he's planning churches, and then he's saying, good, now run with it. Now I'm going to keep writing you letters, but we have to do this in conjunction with one, one another. We have to do this in community with one another. And so how is it that we can look and see what other people are doing and, and join in? And so I want to give you a couple of practical ways and, and look at what Paul is doing. And the first one is that we share in the vision that God has revealed to other people. And, and look with me in verse 22. We're going to read through some section here. It says, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now... With no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, remember that, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. When I first have, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints for Macedonia 
and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, then they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come, I will be in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I want you to hear this, and I want you to understand what Paul is saying. He's saying, number one, here's my vision. This is where I'm at right now, and this is where I'm going. I would like to see you. Just to get a picture of where he is at, remember, he's writing in Corinth. He wants to go to Spain, but on the way to Spain, he wants to stop by and see his friends here in Rome. Now, that would make sense, except that he first has to go to Jerusalem, which is where? The opposite direction. So he says, I would like to come, but I'm, I'm, I'm being held back for a little bit. And, and Paul's intention was that he was going to come even from chapter 1 of Romans. He says, I would like to come, but even when he says, I want to come in chapter 1, he says, I would love to come see you guys in Rome. But now here in chapter 15, towards the end of his letter, he says, I'd love to come see you on my way to Spain. It's, it's kind of like, I, I, for me, I'm sensing a little bit of his apprehension, a little bit of his nervousness of, I'm going to need some money. I'm going to need some help. I want you guys to be supporting me in this. He says, I hope to get to Spain by your help. I, I, I need some help. So this is the direction. He's going, to Cor- going from Corinth to Jerusalem, and then he's going to take, I mean, he has a lot. He's a frequent flyer, right, on the boats. He, he got a free trip every once in a while, maybe upgraded to the first-class cabin. Now, not only is he asking them to share in the vision of what God has revealed to them, but he's also saying, I want you to give. I need you to give. I hope to see you in passing and helped on my way there by you. And, and when he's doing this, he's, he's just saying, look, this is the need, and I'm going to put it out there. I want you to join in. Now, he goes on to name some other places, and, and here's the reason he has to go to Jerusalem. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia, they have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. Now, I want you to understand the context of this, to understand the letter. They knew what was going on. We need a little bit more help. See, Paul is a Jew, but he went to Macedonia and Achaia. We have our missionaries from Macedonia, the Spradleys here. Hi, guys. Nice to see you. They, uh, in fact, let me just show a map real quick. Um, is, is this still where Macedonia is at? Okay, good. We got it right. Thank you. He wants to give a gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem. They're Jews. He's going to the Gentile churches and saying... I'm taking up a collection here. The Jews have given you a spiritual inheritance, spiritual things. Will you help by giving back materially? They need it. And so some of these churches in Macedonia, Achaia, would include churches like Philippi, where we have the book of Philippians, or Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. These are some of the places that Paul is going, and he's going to the Gentile churches, and he's saying... I'm collecting, I want to bring this to Jerusalem, but this is going to be an issue. He's, he's a little worried about this trip. He personally wants to bring it to Jerusalem. He could have just sent it, right? They couldn't have wired it, but he could have just sent a messenger. Here's the money, but he says, I personally want to go do this because I'm trying to build unity. 
I don't know if you know this, but that sometimes our gifts, our generosity, the things that you give can bring unity. And so what he's trying to do is there, there's, a, there's a problem going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews are, are even at war with themselves because they don't understand why there are religious Jews that are now turning their lives over and believing in Jesus. But that the Gentiles, the outsiders, would be given the gift of salvation... Paul is saying, man, if we could do this, if I could bring a gift and I can support, we would know that we're all part of the same team, that we are working together. So Paul personally wants to do it, not just for the material and physical help, but he wants to see unity happening. And so he says, I am coming and this is what I want to do. And I want to just even look at the heart of the people who were giving. It says they were pleased to give a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. Paul brings up this language again in, in the book, in the, the message to the Corinthians. It's another letter in chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I think that that's important language that Paul is capturing as he's telling the Romans He's saying, look, they were pleased to do it. They had cheerfulness in their heart. I hope that you would come and receive me and support me and send me in the same way. But then he also says, I need you to pray for me. Look in verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He says, I need prayer. Will you strive together with me in your prayers? And then he has two prayer requests. Number one, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. See, Paul used to be on the inside with all of the religious Jews, but because he was knocked off of his horse and God changed the trajectory of his life, he is not liked that much. So he's a little bit worried about going there. He's had to escape there. He's been beat up for his faith and for his mission that God has given him. It's been a little bit disruptive, but he says, look, there are some there in Judea who want me out of here. And if you read the end of the story, in fact, you can read it, Acts 21 to 28, Paul eventually gets to Jerusalem and he gets arrested. He's in Jerusalem for a little while. He gets on a boat. Now he has to go to Rome. He eventually gets to Rome. It's a couple of years later. And then when he gets to Rome, he is actually imprisoned there in Rome for a couple more years. So he does actually make it to Rome. We're not actually sure if he makes it to Spain. There is a writer, I think, in like 95 AD named Clement who talks about that he made it to the far reaches of the West. That's, that's as good as we've got. But we know that Paul gets it there. But He's saying, pray for me because there are people who are after me when I get to Judea. Well, whether they prayed or not, um, God saw fit for Paul to be arrested. But the other thing is, he says, and that my service, this offering, the thing that I am bringing here for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Paul's a little bit nervous. He doesn't want to bring this gift to the Jews in Jerusalem and have them look at it and say, did you get this from the Gentiles? That's dirty money. He's praying, I hope that there is unity, that this gift together, the generosity of these people will bring us together. And he says, if those things are answered, if those things are helped, then I may come to you in joy. Thank goodness all of that is over. I just can't wait to get in and out of Jerusalem, right? That I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. 
I've been glued to what's going on in our world right now. Have you been watching, seeing news, hearing reports? It's not pretty, right? Um, it's not just what's going on in Israel and Gaza right now. Though, as I've been talking to one of our missionaries, Moran Rosenblatt, a good friend of ours, missionary in Jerusalem, um, he, he's saying the same thing that Paul's saying. Will you strive together? Will you keep us in prayer? Because this is what's going on. Um, I, I have an app on my phone. It's called Red Alert Israel. And every time a siren goes off in Israel, um, I get an alert on my phone. And even just last service, there was 11 of them. Um, and so it's something that, it, for me, it's just a reminder to, to just be in prayer. Um, so we need to be striving together with those who are out there and those who are working and those who are trying to plow the fields of salvation so that other people might know. But you, you might even just have a little bit of a disconnect and say, well, that's Israel. and Gosh, that's such a mess over there. I don't even know how that's going to be fixed. Um, I'll, I'll pray and, and, and we need to. Um, but I also want us to understand and hear that for us, the church here in America, we are so insulated and we are so secure because we don't have persecution at all of, of, of I mean, really, it's nothing compared to what I've seen in the news this week. I, I have some of these articles. Um, there's a guy who's called the Jewish Schindler who's rescuing Iranian Christians Syrians and Iraqis and since Schindler Oscar Schindler if you've heard that story rescued 1200 people this guy from Canada um, he's he's a Jew who's seen Christians who are being persecuted all over the world he wants to rescue and pull out Christians and he's up to 782 people from the Middle East most of these are refugees from Syria so these are, are some of these things. But I don't know if you've been following what's going on even in Iraq. The, the town of Mosul, there's an there's a Islamic Jihad terrorist organization there called ISIS. And ISIS is trying to destroy Christianity. They are going into town after town and they're giving the people there, the Christians there, some options. And they'll know if you're a Christian or not and they'll actually mark your house with an Arabic N. The N stands for Nasrani, which means a Nazarene. You are a follower of the Nazarene. Nazarene. And if you have that mark, then you have one of four choices. Number one, you convert to Islam. Number two, you can pay an obscene tax that will leave you impoverished. It's called the Jiza. And number three is you can die by the sword. Number four is you run for your life. But they're sending out, ISIS is sending out these pamphlets all over the place throughout Iraq. And they're saying, these are your options. You need to go. And it's interesting, in the town of Mosul, it's, it's a community that has had Christians there for the last 2,000 years. A month ago, there were about 40,000 Christians in the town of Mosul, Iraq. As of last Saturday at noon, the last Christian family left. They were forced. If you've been watching, the, the, birth, or the, the burial places of Jonah and Daniel have been blown up. There have been mosques that have been made over these areas. And even as they've dug through the rubble, um, they've found that ISIS has blindfolded and murdered 50 people. They're, they're taking Iraqi soldiers, even in the last week, to, to finish off Ramadan. They had 1,500 Iraqi soldiers that were put in the backs of trucks, and they brought them out into the desert, and they shot them, 1,500 of them. They'd bring them to the edge of a lake, and they'd shoot them and throw their bodies into the lake. This is happening to Christians in Iraq. This is happening to Christians in Syria. This is happening to Christians all over the world. 
anti-Semitism is at an all-time high. In France, there are Jews that are now leaving France and running to Israel. The only safe place, if you could call sirens and air raids and missiles coming in from Gaza safe, but it's the one place where the Jewish people can be and not be threatened because they're Jews. And as they're leaving, there are Islamic terrorists who are yelling, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. It's not just those things, though. I mean, look, we have planes that are being shot out of the sky. There are deals happening with North Korea, and there's things in Russia, and there's things in China. And you look at the condition of the world, and the only thing that we can do is just stop and say, really, is this what we live in today? I am in some kind of parallel universe. And so when Paul is saying, strive with me in prayer, we need to pray. Uh, in the bulletin that you have today, we have 54 different postcards of missionaries that are sent out by us at Calvary, and we've randomized them, so I don't know who you got. But on one side is just a picture of our missionary family and a little real quick synopsis of who they are, what they do. On the back side is a spot for you to write. It's already been addressed. And so I want us to just strive with our missionaries, and I want you to even understand with this that these are the 54 missionary families that we were able to send them to. Um, the rest of them are ones that we can't because if they get a postcard like this saying, good luck on your journey with Jesus, they'll be exposed and they'll be in a lot of trouble. So these are the ones that are in safety and it's okay. Um, but especially as we're writing out a, a prayer, a, a message of encouragement to our missionaries, which I would, I, I'm encouraging, exhorting, asking you to do, um, that you also just keep in prayer the ones that we couldn't put in your bulletin today. And instead of us spending a couple grand on stamps, we are asking you for international postcards. I think it's $1.15. Um, it might be, I don't even know what postage is for a postcard, but 30, 40 cents. If you would do that, if you would write that today before you leave, that you would encourage them and you would strive with them in prayer. But think about, I mean, this is not the world that we live in. There was a couple of quotes that came from Mosul that said, for the first time in the history of Iraq, Mosul is now empty of Christians. They talked to one family that was leaving on their way out, and they said, we're being threatened every day. We don't have anything left but our faith. It's like life has stopped, and we are so tired. I even saw an article that was talking about uh, excuses, lame excuses that we as Christians in the American church use, and sometimes it's just, I'm so busy. Um, or we just have theological divides, or it's so far away, I don't, I don't know what I can do. Um, and I'll, I, I just want to even say, uh, I, I feel a little bit like handcuffed. It's not like, all right, get on a plane, we're going to Iraq. Okay, we get there, and what are we going to do now, right? So there has to be some strategy with that. But again, this is a question that we bring up to God, and we say, God, what is it that you are asking me to do? But I, I say all of this today um, I, I guess I, I, I'm not trying to scare us. I'm trying to wake us up and try to say, like, there is a world of comfort that we have, and it's in direct opposition to the world of persecution, pain, and suffering of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world. And we need to do something about it. We need to share in the vision that God has given to our missionaries who are on the ground and they're going. We need to be connected with them. 
We need to be giving. We need to give financially. That, that puts troops and people on the ground so that we are going into these places. That's what I love about our, our missionary in Israel is he's using this as an opportunity for the gospel when people are getting moved from a hometown in, near Gaza up to Galilee so their family can be safe for the first time. And they, they ask Moran, why are you doing this? He says, because I want to give you hope here in Israel, but it's not just hope that you're getting away, but there's a greater hope. And that hope is our God of peace. And that God of peace is Jesus. And so Paul ends this passage here in verse 33, and he says, now God of peace be with you all. Amen. See, I want you to understand that the God of peace is working out his story. God is not up there in heaven saying, man, this is not how I thought it was going to go at all. I wonder what we should do next. God is saying, I've known from the very beginning what is going to happen and I want hearts to turn back to me. I want to equip the church to be doing something and not just being like chameleons here in Orange County that we need to be movement. We have to have movement. We have to have our hearts set on God's plan. And what is it that we are going to do? And look, there is not a solution for peace that exists here on this earth outside of the Prince of Peace. Star Shalom is his name. And so we look to him. And so my prayer is right now, as we're going to go in, we're going to have a time, we're going to take communion together, um, that we remember that the God of peace sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our peace, to be our atonement. We were at war with him and he has saved us. And now we are part of this body. We are in this family. And unfortunately, part of our family is hurting and suffering. And so we have to do something about it. We can't just idly sit by. But as we take communion, as you ponder and you're thankful for your salvation, I want you to strive in prayer. I want you to remember how good we have it, but that we, <laughs> that we can connect with the pain of our brothers and our sisters. That you would just write a note of thanksgiving to our missionaries and take that today. Don't let this get lost in your Bible and six months from now you find it and say, oh yeah, that thing. Be, be on top of it and mail it this week. So I want to invite us to trust. I want to invite us to enter in as we worship and as we just pause and we, we remember what Jesus has done for us, where the elements are going to be passed. Let me pray. Oh God, you are inviting us into your story. Uh, that, that we would have a part to play, that you've given us a role I don't know if that is to be part of what's happening with the Issachar Initiative. I don't know if we have planters in this, in this body, in this room, or if we have people who are coming along watering. But I do know that you've called us. I, I do know that you want us to be doing something. So help us to live out our part in your story. Stir us and stimulate us so that we would know where we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to give. And as we take these elements, that this bread and this cup, as we sit with them in our hands this morning, it would be a reminder for us that we are in your body, that this is something that has taken place for years, thousands and thousands of years, that we 
we remember that you loved us enough that you died for us and that you brought peace in our relationship. So we give you this time in our hearts and our focus and our attention. In Jesus' name, amen.